Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we're going to be. It's great to see you today. I always tell you this, this is my favorite moment of the, uh, the week right here, being with the, with the church, with the people of God. And so um, it's great to see you. Ephesians chapter 4, we're jumping right in. So we're going to be starting in verse 17. And so to get there, um, I need to make a couple of statements to kind of launch us into wh- where Paul is going today. And so first statement goes like this. And I, I hope that, and this is really what the first three chapters of Ephesians are about, is this statement right here, is that Christians are new creations. This is what a Christian is. And so if you would claim to be a follower of God in this room, if, that is, if that's true, if that's real, if you really are one of God's, then the Bible is going to say that you are a new person. That the old, that this is the point of 2 Corinthians 5.17. And if you don't know that verse, that would be one worth memorizing. This whole idea of this old you, this former you is gone. Like that former you has been killed. And God has made you into a new creation, a new person. That is 2 Corinthians 5.17. That in the gospel, we have become new people. And this is what Paul has been laying out for us. That for a Christian, you are a new creation. And so for a Christian, we are not now. Like we are not yet what we will one day be. We will one day be made perfect completely. That's heaven. So we are not yet that. We are not yet what we will one day be. But by the grace of God, we are no longer what we once were. Amen? This is the gospel. That you are no longer what you once were. And we're all a work in progress to get to the final destination, right? And we're all a work in progress to become what God has created us ultimately to be. But we are no longer what we once were. We are new creatures. If you're a Christian, you have been made new, restored, redeemed. That image of God that was distorted in the fall has been recreated and reshaped in you. Okay, now Jeremiah would say the same thing this way. He would say, I have reached into your heart, or God has reached into your heart, and he has taken out the heart of, of, heart of stone that's hardened to God, that doesn't want anything to do with God, that is spiritually dead before God. I've, I've reached in, Jeremiah would say, God has reached in, taken out that heart of stone, and placed in you a heart of flesh. Okay, that's Jeremiah's way of saying that you're a new creature in Christ. You're a new creation. Okay, um, Jesus' way of saying it would be, when you become a Christian, you are born again. This is his words to Nicodemus in John 3. That to be a Christian, you have been born again. You have been made new. Everything has changed. The gospel radically reorients and reshapes every part of your life. This is what it means to be a Christian. Okay, now Paul, in the last three chapters, he uses a little different vocabulary to get across the same point. That when you are in Christ, you have been redeemed. He, he might use the word reconciled. You've been reconciled in Christ. You've been adopted in Christ. And I love this imagery in, in chapter 2. He says that in Christ, or before Christ, you were dead. This was the old you. This is pre-Christ days. You were dead. This is what you were. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, God, breathes life into you. And for the first time, you take spiritual gasp. For the first time, you start to breathe spiritually. And God saves you. Okay, that, that's Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God breathes life into dead people, making them alive. This is what you are if you're a Christian. Christians are new creations. Okay, now this is the angst of, Paul, of what we're getting at today. This is the angst of chapter 4, 17 through 24. This is it. Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, if you're a new creation, your life is intended to reflect that. 
The Christian's life, listen to this, the Christian's life is intended to reflect the fact that you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you're new, and your life is intended to reflect that. Now, now this is the way some of Paul's terminology with this. If you go into Ephesians 3, chapter 10, he says the church... You, the people of God, the new creations that God has made, if you're a part of that, the redeemed, the church, the people of God, then you become the display of the gospel. That's what you are. New creations display the fact that God is all-powerful and that he creates things new in their lives. Okay, now you get to the first of chapter 4 and he says that we do this by walking worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The way we display the gospel is by walking in the gospel. The, the way we reflect that the gospel is real is by it being reflected in our life, in the life of a believer. So you are the display case. If you want people to take your gospel seriously... If you want people to seriously ponder the gospel, then you've got to live in the power of the gospel. You become the display for the great power, the gracious power of the gospel. Okay, this is the point, that the Christian's life has to reflect the fact that you're a new creation. This is the angst. Okay, now jump into verse 17 here. And and by the way, every job, I'm always amazed in America how many different ways there are to make a living. I just ask people what they do, and you find all sorts of crazy things that people have found to, to make a living, right? And so um, all jobs have some joys with it, right? I mean, even the bad ones have a few joys with it. And I, one of the greatest joys of being a pastor is watching this reality of God making new creations and the Christian life reflecting that new creation. It's one of the deepest joys that a pastor has. And I've got to see this in so many of you here. I've got to see God come in and do something very special in your heart that has now become reflected in your life. I've seen really, I mean, guys that are real jerks become good guys, you know? Isn't that a great thing to see? People that are just not good people become just good, tender-hearted people. It's one of the great joys of, of a pastor. And now you're about to see the heart of Pastor Paul come out here in verse 17. And look at what he says here. And this is where this is going. The Christian life, when God makes you a new creation, our life starts to reflect this fact. Verse 17, Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. And this is the main point of the text. If you want to underline something, highlight something, star something, star this phrase. This is the point right here. That you must no longer walk. And when he says walk, he's talking about the pattern of your life. That your life, your walk is your life. The way you live, the way you do, all the things that you do, the way you work, the way you parent, the way you do, all of these things is your walk. And he's saying this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk that way. And Gentiles are not an ethnic people here. He's not talking about this group of people that are the Gentiles. He is talking about a spiritual reality, a spiritual group of people. He is talking about, with that word Gentiles, he is talking about those people who are disconnected from Christ. He is talking about those people who live like they have no God. These are the Gentiles. Unconnected, living as their own God. He is saying you must no longer, if you're a believer, he's talking to the church. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you would claim the name of Jesus, he's made you new. 
in your life has got to reflect that. It's got to reflect this great reality that you are a new creation. Because this is what he's saying, that you cannot walk as the Gentiles do. You cannot walk as if there is no God in your life. If you do, you make a public mockery of the name of God. Okay, and and then this is where you see the heart of the pastor come out. Look at the first phrase here in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. So Paul's point is, your life, if you're a Christian, the Christian life has to reflect that you're a new creation. And and then you see the angst of Paul in, in the first phrase here when he says, all this I'm saying to you, I'm saying this in the Lord. These are not me trying to hurt you with these words. This is God speaking through me for your benefit. This is me lovingly confronting you with the gospel. This is me not allowing you to sit comfortably in your sin. This is me not allowing you to set up a camp and to stay in your sin. This is me calling you to the carpet and saying, you cannot live that way if you're a Christian. If God has made you a new creation, you're going to be miserable if you stay there. And these are the words of God. This is not me saying this. This is God speaking through me. What I'm saying and testifying, these words are the Lord's words. And as applicable as they are to to first century Ephesus, they're probably as much or more applicable to us. Will you just pause and think with me for a second about the normal landscape of Christianity in our area? Just think about what's normal. We live in in the land of easy believism. We live in the land that we love Christ, we just hate the cross. We live in the land that's got admirers everywhere. Churches are full this morning with people who come in, they raise their hand, they'll say amen at the appropriate time. They'll sing like Celine Dion. I mean, they've got the whole thing going on, right? So, So we've got a culture full of admirers and churches full of admirers, but very few followers. We've got churches full of people who applaud Jesus, but just don't walk in him. We've got churches full of people who flirt with the gospel, but don't follow the king, King Jesus revealed in the gospel. We've got churches full of people who play all day, like around the gospel, but just don't walk in the power of it. Okay, so so we've got people who publicly come in and proclaim, we love Jesus, but we all know that privately they malign the gospel. This is our culture. We treat Jesus like he's some sort of insurance. Like we just need to make sure we've got the whole safe thing down. So, so if things go bad at the end of the day, then heaven or hell, if this is really the, the real deal, then we're okay. When the Bible paints Jesus like a treasure, that's what Jesus is. He's not insurance for you. He's a treasure to love and to live for. Okay, and here's the thing, like Barnett, his statistics and his kind of polling would support what I'm saying here. Like he did this poll recently where he is polling the lifestyle of a person who comes into church. Like they're in and out every Sunday. I mean, they are the church crowd. They're the people who would claim Jesus. And here's what he found about their lifestyles. That there is no difference in them and an unbeliever. No difference. So the way we live 
it does not reflect the fact that we're new creations. And this is what Paul is fighting against. He's saying that you can no longer do this. And listen, I don't even put all the blame in the pews. I put the blame on church leaders who would say that our church is good, fine, healthy, when this is the reality in their place. This is our culture. It is the air we breathe. And it's here too, by the way. I mean, we're it to some degree. And this is what Paul is saying. This cannot be. We cannot publicly profess and yet privately malign. This is not the way we are to walk in Christ. And this is where he comes in in Ephesians 4, 1 and says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You are the display of Jesus. You're the display of the gospel. And he's saying these words are God's words. They should have weight and urgency for us. We all need to feel the first cut from Paul this morning. Everybody look at me here. That we are no longer to live like the Gentiles do. If we're a Christian, our life is to reflect that we're new creations. Okay, now he doesn't stop there, though. He, he, could, he could just stop and say, don't walk as the Gentiles do. But he's going to spend the next three verses, 17, 18, 19, describing what the Gentiles are, what people apart from God are. He's going to define what the old man that was killed when you became a Christian, what that old man is, who that old person is. Okay, so watch this. He's going to define the old man. He's going to use seven descriptives here, seven descriptions, these seven phrases that get at what the old man is. So watch this starting in verse 17. This is what he says. Look at this with me. At the end of the, the phrase there, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And this, this is the description. And I'm going to ask you to underline some words here. He says, in the futility, underline that word futility. In the futility of their minds, 18, they are darkened. You might under, uh, underline that word darkened in their understanding. Underline alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. Underline that word ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness, you might underline that word, hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up. You might underline that word, given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice. You might underline greedy to practice. Every kind of impurity. Seven descriptions of what the life is apart from Jesus. Life unconnected, living as if there is no God. The old man, seven descriptions. Let's run through these. The first one he says is futility. Look at that word futility there. That, that in their minds, they're just thinking futilely. I, it's just futile minds. In their minds, how they think about life, the direction of their life is futile. Here's what it means. To, here's what the word futile means. It means without purpose, meaningless. Giving your life to small things. So this is what it means to live in futility. It means that you are living for things that give you no purpose. You are living for trivial things. To, to live in futility means that we are living for small things that promise everything yet deliver nothing. This is what living in futility means. Th that we are chasing a thousand dreams and none of them will ever satisfy you. Living in futility maybe has this picture along with it. That we are the person that is thirsting to death. We are about to die of thirst. And we run from well to well, every one of them empty, thinking that we can draw up water from it. While Christ is sitting right across from us as the mountain stream that never ends. That's what it means to live in futility. It means we chase a thousand things that are empty while Christ sits right before us. 
here's here's the idea. The idea is that you in your heart have a God-sized slot in you. This is the biblical teaching. This is what it means to be made after the image of God. That you have a God-sized slot that only God can fill. And this is what it means to walk in futility. It means that we stiff-arm God and we try to take money and place it into that slot. We try to take our business savvy and success, and we'll try to place it in that slot. We'll try to take even good things, right? Even family, and we'll try to slide it into that slot. We'll take our kids, and we'll elevate them to a God, and we'll try to fit it into that slot. We'll take comfort, put it into that slot. A thousand, we'll take a relationship, put it into that slot. And Paul's saying it's futile. This is what it means to walk in futility. It means that you're chasing things that can never ultimately satisfy you. Have you made the connection yet that nothing but God will fit the slot in your heart? Nothing but God will scratch your deepest itch. Nothing but God will solve your deepest ache. Have you made that connection? Because see, this is what it means to walk in futility. To walk in futility means that we have stiff-armed God and that we are trying to fill that slot with something else. That we have devoted our life. Our life is about the pursuit of whatever we think will satisfy us. This is the issue. We all believe something will satisfy. And so right now, we are running after that something. Today, we are living for that something. And the Bible is going to say, whatever that something is, that is what you are worshiping. Worship is us looking to something for satisfaction, devoting our life to that thing. And if we are worshiping anything but God this morning, if we believe anything but God will satisfy us, the Bible calls it an idol. And idols always lead us to futility. Idols always make us want to headbutt the wall and scream really loud. Because they never satisfy It never works. It is chasing an empty promise. And this is what it means to be apart from Christ. That that we're living in futility. Now he goes on. It doesn't stop there. Number two, look at verse 18. He says they are darkened in their understanding. That their understanding has become darkened. And notice this, that sin begins in the brain. Have you noticed that? Sin is not first an external thing. It is first an internal thing. The problem is not our environment. The problem is not what happens to us. The problem is us. That's the problem. It's an internal issue. Okay, it's our minds. We're walking in futility. Our our mind is darkened. And here's what it means to have a darkened mind. It means that we cannot see clearly. We just can't see. We cannot see sin for what it is. It's in, have you ever noticed this? That when you have people in the middle of sin, it's, it's a physical impossibility for them to see what they're doing clearly. We cannot see the dangers of sin. We can't see the consequences of sin. We can't see the end road of sin. We can't see any of that when our minds are darkened. Um, Laura and I were talking about this this week, that we have been on the fringe of several couples um, where either the guy or the lady has walked out of the marriage for another relationship. And in almost every one of those cases, we or somebody that we know have sit down beside them and we have pled with them. And I don't care. I'm any sane person that's looking at the situation would look at them and say, you are, you're not seeing clearly. You're not thinking clearly, 
Right now to you, two plus two equals three. This is how you're thinking. And you know what? In every one of those situations, you know what's happened? They have an airtight defense as to what they're doing and why they're doing it. They have legitimized it and justified it from every angle. You ever talk to that person? From every angle. I mean, this is how that conversation goes. Yeah, I know that two plus two does not equal four right now. It equals three. But like if you take um, two and you multiply it by like 16, take the square root, divide it by 37, then it equals three. And what are you talking about? You're not seeing, and this is what sin does to us. It darkens our mind. When we have a darkened understanding, we cannot see clearly. In the midst of that moment, we bite the bait of sin. And we can feel the line tighten as the hook is set. But that bait tastes so good that we do not care what it costs us. This is a darkened understanding. Okay, now he goes on. To keep, he keeps describing what this old man is. He says it's darkened understanding. And then he goes on to say it's alienation. Look at verse 18. Alienated from the life of God. Sin is always a separator. It always separates. It's going to start with, your, with God. It's going to separate you from God. This is what sin does. It separates. So you take the guy that is sinning. You take the guy that, uh, that he is in his mind. He is chasing after dreams that will never satisfy. You take the guy walking in futility with a darkened understanding. And here's what you're going to find with that guy. That he has taken his sin and he has run as hard as he can after it. And every time he makes a movement toward that sin, he is making a move away from God. And eventually, he will find himself not reading the word. You do not sin consistently and for the long haul and read the Bible. You don't do it. One of those will die. You're not going to be praying anymore. You're not going to get your life around the people of God anymore. You're going to stop all of those things. And you're going to start living as if there is no God because that's how far you are from God. This is what sin does to us. Oh, okay, then on the other side, it separates us from the people of God. You take the man that's having an affair, and you take a camera into their bedroom, and you watch that man and his wife sit on that bed together. And you know what you're going to find? Separation is there. Alienation is there. This is what sin does. If you stay in your sin, this is what happens. You will distance yourself from every person that does not approve of it. And you will buddy up with those who will cheer you on in the middle of your hard-hearted sin. You will separate yourself. You will stiff arm everybody that would love you enough to confront you in it. This is what we do. It alienates us from the people of God and from God. He goes on. It gets worse. Yeah, no kidding, huh? I'm getting stressed out already. Okay, verse 18. So we're alienated from the life of God. And then it says this, because of the ignorance that is in them. When we are in the middle of sin, and I'm saying this really humbly because I have been here. We are ignorant people. We are idiots, morons. Like just think of of synonyms to go on down the road there, right? This is what we are in the middle of sin. Sin is self-cannibalization. We feast on ourselves until we kill ourselves. That's what sin does. And you know what makes sin so tricky? Is that we can't tell that we're eating ourselves. We can't tell that, that we're killing ourselves as we commit it. It makes, it makes absolute perfect sense to us to start gnawing on our leg in the midst of sin. This is what makes it so difficult, is it's tricky, right? 
So, so in the middle of our sin, we totally divorce our sin from any consequences. We can't even see the consequences of our sin when we're in the middle of it because we're so stupid in it, right? This is the problem. I was there. I have been there. So I'm not saying that humbly or, or pri- pri- pridefully. I'm saying that with deep humility, that this is us in sin. It makes sense to us. We become ignorant in our thinking. Darkened in our understanding. See, see, here's the problem with sin is that it will always cost you more than you want to pay. Keep you longer than you want to stay. Right? It's always going to do that. It's going to always cost you more and keep you longer. See, sin is like a pit bull. And when it latches its teeth into you, right? I mean, you can get a pit bull off. You hit him with the board long enough, you can get him off, right? It just may cost you your arm. And this is sin. And the problem is, in the middle of it, we have such a hard time seeing that when it sinks its teeth in, it does not just let go. It It latches onto you. It's a pit bull. Remember that imagery? That sin is a pit bull. You can get it off, but it's going to cost you something when it comes off. But in our ignorance, we have such a hard time seeing that, don't we? Such a hard time. Okay, let's keep going here. Number five, he says that we're hard-hearted. Look at verse 18. Due to the hardness of their heart, verse 19, they have become callous. See, here's how sin works. When we sin, God is gracious to us. You know how he's gracious to us? He gives us a conscience. We are made in the image of God, so we are imprinted with the law of God on our heart. So when we sin, we know it, right? When you sin, when I sin, I know that I sin. That is, that's what you call a conscience condemning me. That's what a conscience does for us. It's the imprint of the image of God in our heart that says, that is wrong. You are wrong to do that. Okay, but here's how, here's how this works. Um, when, when we sin long enough and hard enough, that imprint of God and that conscience that condemns us, you know what happens? it gets hidden under a thousand calluses. So, so what used to be so strong when we sinned, we had such an, a feeling of guilt and what am I doing? That disappears. And listen to me, here's what happened in the middle of sin. What used to be a huge vice that you could never consider yourself doing, you now champion like a virtue. This is what the hardness of heart means. We get spiritual leprosy. You know what leprosy is? It's when the nerve endings in your body, the nerve endings deaden. So a rat can literally chew your toe off and you'll never know it. Welcome to sin. Spiritual leprosy is what a hard heart is. Pain is a gift from God. It, pain is the thing that communicates to your, to your uh, fingers, don't touch the stove. It's going to hurt. Conviction is a gift from God that says, from God to your heart and into your life, don't go there. Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. It's going to have terrible consequences. It's dangerous. But that can be hidden under calluses. You do it long enough and hard enough, and that will be hidden under a hard heart where you will no longer feel and you will be headlong into sin. Every time I watch um, like a World War II type movie with a deaf camp in it, I always ask myself the question, how can a person get to the point where he would treat another human being like a dog? 
You ever ask yourself that question when you watch those movies? You know the answer to that? You treat a person like a dog long enough, he'll become a dog. You do it long enough, that's what they'll become. You, you suppress conviction long enough, and you'll believe anything. You suppress the movement of God in your heart long enough, you can think anything. And men, look at me, men, don't think that can't happen to you. Don't think it can't happen to you. You open your life up to hard-hearted sin in one area of your life, and you open all of your life up. Every bit of it. Hard heart. Okay, he goes on. We're almost there. We're almost past the really difficult part here, right? Okay, verse six, or uh, number six. Um, he says, and have given themselves up to sensuality. They have given themselves up to. This is the idea that they have given themselves up, given themselves over for it. They are headlong into sin and there is no restraint in them. They are headlong into sin. We are headlong into sin and we have no plan of fighting it. No plan of getting out of it. No plan of doing anything other but setting up camp and sitting in our sin. This is the idea that we just give ourselves up. We throw up our hands and say, this is going to be life for us. This is it right here. So they give themselves up. And here's the last one, number seven. Sin becomes this insatiable desire, this insatiable appetite. You cannot have enough of it. We become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When we have some, we want more. This is the movement of sin in your life. The more you eat it, the more you taste the bait, the more you want of it. This is how it works. Um, okay, so, so this is a good illustration, maybe this whole thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about how Eskimos would, would hunt for wolves. This is how they would do it. They would take a piece of meat, they would cut it open, and they would put a razor blade in the middle of it. And then they would freeze that piece of meat. They would stake it down and they would leave it and just wait for a wolf to come by. And here's what the wolf does. He sniffs it out. He finds it. He can't take it away because it's staked down. He can't really start biting into it because it's, uh, it, it's frozen. So he starts licking it. So as this wolf licks this frozen razor blade covered in meat, Finally, he starts to warm enough of that meat where just small trickles of blood comes out of that meat and onto his tongue. And when he tastes that blood, it gives him more passion, more urgency, more desire to lick harder. Eventually, he works his way to the razor blade and his tongue slices across it. Here's the problem. His tongue is numb from the frozen meat. So as he slices his tongue across it, his own blood has now filled his mouth. And when his blood touches his mouth, it sends him in a frenzy. He's licking harder and harder with more passion, more urgency. Every time he cuts his tongue, every lick, he's one, close, or one step closer to his death. The Eskimo comes back the next day and finds the wolf dead in the pool of his own blood. A self-inflicted wound. This is what the old man is. We are the wolf who has numbed ourselves to the razor blade. And when we start cutting across sin in our life, we start to get this taste of sin. We lick harder and harder, not seeing the danger, not seeing the consequences, not seeing that it is a razor blade that is literally about to kill us. Sin is self-cannibalization. This is what it is. It is feasting on yourself and not even knowing it. And eventually from a self-inflicted wound, we die. 
This is sin. And this is what Paul says. This is what you once were. This is the old self. Apart from Christ, when you are born into this world, this is the road you are born into. We are the wolf licking ourselves to death, thinking this is life. This is what it's about. Okay, so this is what Paul says. Now, look at verse 20. He says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. This is not you. If you're in the gospel, you're a new creation. You are not the old self. You are a new person in Christ. And can you feel the tension here? Because I can feel the tension. Because I know that I'm new in Christ, but I feel the lingerings of the old man. Don't you? When I'm scratched, I can see the old man come out sometimes. When I am pushed up against, I can feel the old man come out sometimes. Sometimes it comes out in our marriages, doesn't it? Sometimes it comes out in our language, doesn't it? I mean, it can come out in a thousand different ways. And Paul's saying, this is what we've got to do. We have got to not be the old man. We have got to destroy the old man in our life. This is it. We can no longer live like the, like the Gentiles do. We can no longer live out of this old man. We've got to practice what we preach. We have got to destroy the old man in us. We've got to destroy him. This is the job. And so he he starts to walk us through how to do that. Okay, so look at verse 20. Let's read this. But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Here's what he's saying. If you want to destroy the old man, this is what it takes. It takes, first and foremost, you knowing the gospel. This is where it starts. You've got to know the gospel. And here's what that means. That you have got to know what Christ has done for you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. So this is what that means. Apart from Christ, what we just described is you. That's what you were. But now in Christ, he has brought you out, rescued you from all of those things. This is the gospel. This is book in one. That you are more sinful than you could dare imagine. Than you could ever imagine. However sinful you think you are, you're probably more sinful than that, right? I'm the biggest sinner I know because I'm, I know me the best, right? So this is how it works for all of us, that we are more sinful than we could dare imagine. Paul uses this terminology, we're dead in sin, we're unresponsive, we're rebellious, and because God is holy, more holy than we could ever imagine, right? We're condemned in our sin. This is bookend one to the gospel. It keeps us humble. This is bookend number two of the gospel. In the gospel, we are more loved than we could dare dream. This is how he describes it in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, because of his great grace and great love for you, made you alive. And when he makes you alive, listen to this now. When he makes you alive, this is what he does. He takes his sword and he thrusts it into the old man and inflicts a mortal wound. This is what Christ does. So we have to know the gospel. We have to know that in Christ, the old man has been killed and Christ has recreated, reformed, reshaped the new man in us. We have to know the gospel, what Christ has done. But listen, it's not just knowing those facts. Those facts, you can know those facts and still go to hell, all right? You can know all those facts and it still go badly for you. So it's not just knowing those, knowing those, those facts. It's not just knowing what Christ has done. It is knowing Christ. This is the deal. It is knowing what he has done and then knowing him. Look at what it says in verse 20. This is not the way you learned what? About Christ? What he has done? No, it's not the way you learned Christ. We have to know Jesus. So let me just ask you the question. Do you know Jesus? 
I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you're a pretty good guy. I'm not asking if um, you treat your wife. I'm not asking. It's do you know Jesus? He is the only way out of the old man. The only way. I mean, you can put band-aids on the old man. You can do a lot of things. He is the only way out of the old man. Do you know Jesus? Knowing Jesus means that we have put our faith in him. Ephesians 3 says that, that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Faith is trusting in and treasuring Jesus. So I'm not asking if you just know the facts. I'm asking, do you treasure Jesus? That's faith. Do you treasure him? Do you know him? We have churches full of people who think they do. Know a lot of good facts, don't know him. Do you know Jesus? Until you know Jesus, you're going to be stuck in the old man. So, so if, we want out of, if we want the old man destroyed, we have to know the gospel. What Christ has done, and we have to know Christ. Okay, now this is the second part of this. If we want to destroy the old man, here's, here's what it takes. Knowing the gospel, and then daily applying the gospel to our lives. Daily applying what Christ has done and what we now are in Christ to our lives. This is what it takes. And he gives three things that that, that kind of is characterized by. Look at what he says here. Verse 22, first one. To put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. This is what it means to apply the gospel daily. Is that you put off the sinful nature. You put it off. That you put it off. Listen, putting off the sinful nature is not you becoming something that you aren't. It is you walking in what you are. This is the gospel. Putting off the old self is you putting, walking in what you are, what Christ has made you. It's you walking in the new creation. Why would we want to have the old clothes on, right? I mean, why do we want those on? So he's saying, put off the old nature. Here's what this is. It is a call to kill sin in your life. It's a call to kill it, not to cuddle with it, not to keep it kind of contained in your life. It's a call to kill sin in your life. I love how C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he uses this imagery of a red lizard. Okay, I'm not saying C.S. Lewis is a little bit crazy, all right? So he's got the imagery of a red lizard that is sitting on a guy's shoulder. And the red lizard is always promising this guy things that he could never fulfill. He's always tempting, always kind of giving this voice in his head that says, hey, why why don't you trade your wife in for, why don't you upgrade, right? Why why don't you trade your your husband in for a, yeah, we we could, okay, why don't you go to the computer and and grab that pornography? Why don't you um, run after money like it's your life and it's going to satisfy you? Why don't you live for comfort? Why don't you, that, that person sinned against you, why don't you hate them? You should hate them. Why would you? Okay, so you've got this red lizard that's continually feeding these lies to this guy. And eventually, and by the way, this red lizard, it's meant to kind of symbolize this old self, this lingering old self that is in you, that that still remains, this lingering old self in this war between the new you and that old lingering self. And, And so finally an angel comes to this guy and says, listen, I can kill the lizard. I can, that red lizard, I can kill him. And all of a sudden, this guy realizes that for that angel to kill or to to get rid of that lizard means that that lizard is, I mean, he's going to break the neck of that lizard. Like that lizard's going to die if the angel gets rid of him. And and so all of a sudden, he starts thinking, do I really want that lizard gone? 
I really want him gone. I mean, I would probably be a little bit abnormal if I didn't have a lizard on my shoulder. Everybody else has lizards. Why wouldn't I have a lizard? I mean, I, what would I do without the lizard? I mean, the, the lizard's kind of nice. To, it keeps me kind of company. It's kind of, and, and so maybe I'll just start to build a, a container for the lizard. Maybe I can just kind of maintain the lizard. Maybe I can just kind of have this cage for the lizard. And C.S. Lewis says, and look at me here. In that moment is every moment. You know what our plague is in this room, in your heart, and in my heart? Is we want to contain sin more than we want to kill sin. This is our problem. Is that we want to build this nice little container for it. And and we want to kind of do it in our way and in our kind of form and in our time. Thinking that there's no way it would kill us. In this moment is every moment. You kill your sin, or look at me, it will kill you. It's just a matter of time. You take your pick. You cannot contain it. You cannot, it will not fit in your container. I promise you. It will eat its way out of your container in a matter of moments. You kill it, it kills you. That's the options. So we put off the old self. Listen, that old self has been given a mortal death blow. But here's the problem with it. Like picture, maybe use this this imagery of war. Picture that the general has surrendered. The foreign army has surrendered. But you are camped right across from an army right there that's got 200 soldiers in it. This little pocket of resistance. They have no idea that the, the, the war's done. They have no idea that their general has surrendered. They are still shooting. They are still ready to kill you. They are still ready to come out for battle. And this is our life. Although Christ has killed the old man, we've got these pockets of resistance. And God is saying, you declare war on every pocket of sin and you kill it. You don't cuddle with it. You kill it. Okay, now this is what he says after that. Look at the last phrase there. He says, um, Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, your former way of living. And then look at this last phrase he uses to describe this, this former life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. This is a call to see through the deceitfulness of sin. So this is where we need to have a real honest conversation here. Moms and dads in this room. Where is it? that your mind is thinking in futility? Where is it right now that you are pursuing things that promise you everything yet deliver nothing? It's deceit, right? I mean, it's an empty promise for you. It will never satisfy. Where is it that you are chasing things, even good things? Your family can put you in futility. It can do that. So in even good things, where have you elevated things that are good things that you can enjoy to the place of God? Wherever you have done that, you are walking in the deceitfulness of sin, in futility. That's what, that's what we're walking in when we do that. Okay, so it's not just um, futility. Where is it that, that you're walking in just hard-hearted, calloused hardness towards sin? Where is it that you just, you don't even feel the sinfulness of it anymore, right? I mean, where is it? Maybe, maybe it's lying. We have just lied so much, it's second nature to us. That we have just stolen so often that we don't even feel like it's stealing anymore. 
right? That, that we are so disrespectful to our wife that we don't even feel like it's disrespectful. We feel like it's normal now, right? Where is it that you have just hardened your heart to sin and acted like it's not there? You just don't even feel that it's sinful anymore. Where is it that your understanding has just been darkened? That you have justified and legitimized your sin? I mean, you've got it figured out. You could, somebody calls you out, you've got 19 reasons why it makes sense, even though it's unbiblical. Where is it that your sin has alienated you? It has separated you from your people that love you, care for you, separated you from God. Where is it that it's alienated you? Where is it that sin has just made you ignorant? We can't see the consequences. Where is it that you just can't look down the road and see that this sin will kill me if I keep doing it? Where have you just given up and thrown yourself into it? Cast off restraint. Given yourself over to it. And remember, it's got an insatiable appetite. It doesn't just let go. It is a pit bull that takes your arm with it when you try to get it off. That's what sin is. So, so let, I, I want to be just real honest. Th- this is my hope for today. And just hear, hear my hope and my angst today. My hope is that God might use a, a difficult one. This has been difficult for me this morning. That God might use a difficult morning, hard words to save your life to save my life, to save your marriage, for the guy that is flirting with the person in the office, that that is not okay. That is the old way. That is not the new way. That it would, this would be a morning that might save marriages, that might redeem people in here. Okay, that's the hope. And where is it that you need to see through the deceitfulness of your sin and repent of it? confess that sin, declare war on that sin, walk away from that sin, daily apply the gospel to that sin, to put that sin off. That's, that's the angst this morning. Okay, then he goes on. Look at verse 24. He says this about it. So it's not just putting off, but he says this in verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's not just putting off, the gospel is also putting on. Like, look at verse 25 there. You see verse 25? We're going to get to these next week. And they're going to be painful too, just to warn you. So he's going to say that, that you stop lying. You put off lying. And then you put on truth. This is the gospel pattern. You take these things off. They're the, they're the old man. They're the old clothes. So you take these things off and you put these things on. So he says, you're to put on these things. You're to put on Christ-likeness. Look at what he says here. He says this about your new self, that you're created after the likeness of God. So pre-fall, Genesis 1, you're created in the image of God. Adam and Eve take the fruit, and at that moment, everything on this planet is fractured. Humanity is fractured. Everything in nature is, everything is fractured. And your image, the, the image of God that you were created in is now distorted. And here's what the gospel does. It recreates, refashions the image of God in you. It says you're created after the likeness of God. So we're to live in the likeness of God. We're new creations. Our lives are supposed to reflect that. Okay, and then he goes on to say this. He describes what this new life is like. Look at the end of verse 24. He uses the term righteousness and holiness. These are the descriptive words of a believer's life. Righteousness, right living. And holiness, we are to look like Christ in our lives. It's to reflect Christ in our lives. This is the deal. I love what Spurgeon said. He said that God could use even a fool if that fool's holy. That's what we're to be, even if we're ignorant, right? 
even if you're people like me, we're to be holy so hopefully God might use us, right? This is the gospel, that he would use even fools that are holy. John MacArthur, um, he described this 78-year-old guy. He's dying in the hospital. He goes to the hospital room and says, man, what are you thinking? The guy looks back at him, 78 years old, and says, I never got victory over pornography. Men in this room, you want to cuddle with your sin, build little containers around it, try to put it in a little cage. His fate will be yours. You either kill that sin or you're 78 years old saying to somebody, I never, never got victory over it. Never did. So he says, we put off these things. We put on the new creation. What we are, this is living out of what we are. And this is the last thing and we'll be done. Look at verse 23. This is the key to putting off and putting on. This is how we apply the gospel. We put off these things. We put on these things. And this is the key to applying the gospel. This is it. So don't miss this. This is the key to applying the gospel. Verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You want to put off the old self on the new self? You have to continually remember the gospel. Daily remember the gospel. Every moment, remember the gospel. Every second, remember the gospel. This is how your mind is renewed. This is how you walk in a renewed mind, is you continually remember the gospel. This is why in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul says, this is the gospel. Here it is for you. This is it defined. This is it. Look at it. Know it. One command in chapters one through three. The one command is remember that gospel. This is the reason. Because how you renew your mind in the gospel is by continually remembering it. Two ways you remember it. And we'll end with this. Way number one is the word of God. This is why we constantly, and I mean constantly, there's barely a week that you're going to walk in here that somebody doesn't say, read your Bible. Read it. It's God's gift to you. Read that thing. There's barely a week that comes in here that we don't say, here is the passage of the month to memorize. Memorize it. It's God's gift to you to put it in your heart. It's the reason he has given you a memory. Memorize that stuff. Think about that stuff. Meditate on it. Think about it tomorrow when you wake up, when you're at work, when you're at lunch. Every, think about that thing. The, the word of God. This is how we renew our mind. We continually read through. And here's what happens when you read, memorize, meditate on the scriptures. The gospel is like this flood that continually washes over your mind. Taking off the old, putting on the new. Guys, if you don't think you're just three or four conversations away from thinking in a crazy way, darkened way, you're crazy. The the word of God is meant to be this flood that washes over, keeps the old thoughts off, new man on. And and then we'll finish with this one. Um, Way one, the word of God. Way two, the people of God. This is why we say this almost every week. We've got home groups. Get in a home group. Make sure you are living in community with people. Let let me just show you how how important community is. When your wife, guys, when your wife does something you don't like and you take it to your inner circle of people. Now just play this out. 
You take it to your inner circle, and let's just say your inner circle says this. Well, she is a horrible lady. I agree with you. She is a jerk. Let's, why don't you just leave her? You, you can buddy up with me. I've got an apartment, right? I mean, that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? Or you take it to your inner circle that says this. I'm glad your wife's a jerk. Because you know what that's going to give you a chance to do? To display the gospel and how you love her. That's the difference, right? This is why your inner circle better be people who know the gospel and love you enough to apply the gospel to you. Teenagers, your inner circle doesn't know the gospel, doesn't want to apply it to you. It's just a matter of moments for you're just like them. Daddies, your inner circle, you're going to be just like them. Mamas, your inner circle, your close friends, the people you take that conversation to, you're going to be like them. So can we be people who have the people of God around us that want to apply the gospel? You open your life up to that. It just might save your life. It just might do it. Why don't you pray with me? I know, I mean, these are tough words today. I know that. And I pray that the grace of God might um, settle those things in on your heart. And oh, just maybe he might walk us out of what a normal church would be. That we would not be people who publicly profess and privately malign. That we would be people, Christians. That we would be Christians who reflect the new creation. Oh, God, God would do that for us in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, the way we parent, that he would do that for us. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I want to make this really clear to you. The only way out of your sin is a Savior. That is it. So if you don't know Jesus and you want to kind of have those conversations and start walking in that direction, check that little box on the, the bottom piece of that guest card. Let us know. We would love to start having those conversations. We'll be up here at the end. If you want to come up and talk through that, if you have a spiritual need, you want to walk through that, we would love to do that. It starts with you knowing Christ. That's where it starts. For, for belie- if you would say in here, I'm a believer, does your life reflect it? Is it reflected in the way that you're living? Is the new creation coming out of you? Or is the old man, the old clothes swallowed you up? May this be a day that you know the gospel, what Christ has done, who Christ is, and that you would apply it. That daddies would declare war on their sin. That mamas would declare war on their sin their unforgiveness, their bitterness, their idols, their futility, their darkened understanding, that teenagers declare war on their sin, that our young men would not cuddle with it, but that they would seek to put it to death. Now, our young women in here, that they would see the end road of sin,
God, we pray for great help. Over the men and women of Stonegate, I pray for great grace. That you might rescue them from futility, from darkened understanding. You might rescue us from ignorance, from hard and calloused hearts save us from ourselves. God, and help us to walk in what you have made us. It's in your good name we pray.